Namaste and in La Catch, and welcome to this episode of One World in a New World. I'm your host, Zen Benefiel, and this week's guest is a really special guy. His name's Aaron Shelley. He has been all over the place in technology, from being a programmer to being a COO for a technology firm. Uh, he has been involved with organizational development and he runs a dance studio with his wife, which is really special. One of the things that I want to note, though, is a book that he's written called The Family Flywheel. And it is a really interesting book. I advise you to go check it out because it could be a real benefit if you're having some family issues. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Zen. Excited to be here. Oh, me too. And now we can carry on. Oh, wait a minute, yeah. there is no carry on on this flight. Um, so it, most of the time I, I begin with, and, and I will today, uh, how did you begin to understand this interconnection with something beyond you uh, in your lifetime? Did it happen when you were younger? Was there something that happened in your youth that kind of led you into an understanding maybe even a little bit beyond the, the faith realm? Um, I mean, there's definitely the faith side. You know, there's a religious side where we talk about a God, and then you start to look at the scientific literature. There was a book I had called Super Learning when I think I was 16 or 17. It talked about all of these ways the U.S. and the Russians have studied different techniques for transferring information that were outside the realm of kind of normal knowledge. So I've always just kind of been in this thing of there's always, and, and I'm a scientist, so it's like there's always an unknown. There's always things we don't know. And it's, you know, the difference between what we, you know, if we don't, if, if you took a cell phone back in time, everyone would be like, what is this? And this is witchcraft. And you're like, no, it's just based on stuff you don't know yet. And so it's really just our perception and how we perceive it. So that's where I really look at a lot of these things. Like there's going to be things that we would say are witchcraft or horrible now. And yet, in the right now, they seem like good cancer treatment. But we may look at that and say that was horrible, just like bloodletting was horrible for right. you know George Washington back in the day. So I just think <laughs> science is constantly moving, and I think that we're just becoming better understanders of our current world and existence. I, I think we're learning to ask better questions because what we were asking and the results were we were getting just kind of didn't make sense. You know, the in understanding how the observer affects the experiment, first of all. And that was proven by Los Alamos in the 50s, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we're just now, you know, then the law of attraction came out with, you know, what you think and feel, you, and, you know, you produce. And, and I'd say that, you know, that's where your attention, intention, and interactions are, right? What you pay attention to, you're going to manifest. You're going to see more than if you don't. Speaking of more than you don't, as a kid, it's hard for us to really kind of um, grapple with or, or grok reality in, in the way that we do as adults now. It, it, still, it's experiential and experienceable in the connection that you have with nature, for instance. How did you experience that when you were a kid and, and how did that also support what you were getting as external education as well i just remember when i was in the nature side i would 
I was a Boy Scout, so I did a lot of camping and hiking. I also uh, I read a book called The Tracker, which is about this guy who was trained by an Indian shaman when he was really young, and he's now done. He has a camp, so I went to that. And you just talk about all these things that have kind of been developed. But then when I would go spend time in nature, you just feel so connected. There's a different mental set. And I think as a kid, you're like, I don't understand what it is, but I feel more relaxed here. I feel more at peace here. So I, I think there's, you know, as a child, you're trying to figure out your senses. And then as you're getting older, you're, you're getting more attuned to certain things. And I think that's really just kind of in our development as we go through it, we need to learn kind of little by little. You can't take everything in all at once. Oh, no, it's like putting a, you know, fire hose to a funnel, right? <laughs> Unless you put the opposite end of the funnel in. And then you still, you've got the fire hose effect and, and or the shotgun effect as the case may be. And there's still that learning that takes place. And, and a lot of things are coming, especially as kids, right? There's so much coming at us and so much that we have to learn and integrate and respond to and hopefully enjoy, depending on the kind of childhood we have, because not everybody are as blessed. I, I had a wonderful, even though I was adopted, uh, I was orphaned as a kid. That could be horrific for some. It was a godsend for me because I had a, a really wonderful life as a result. And I'm so thankful for it. Not everybody gets that. Um, so how do you, as you were moving through life in your teenage years, you mentioned the, the super learning and that, you know, I think that was the beginning of recognizing neurodiversity as well um, and how to manage that. How did you see that kind of leading into where you took your interest in life and being able to translate that that faith, that that understanding, that connectedness into something that you were doing in the world? Yeah, I think for me, I remember being very, I felt very connected. I felt very altruistic towards other people. But what I kept finding was, you know, you can want to do it, you can want to be altruistic, but then you see leaders who would be very poor leaders and take advantage, you know, poor leadership. And then a one bad manager can screw up a whole group's, you know. Oh, yeah. People don't life. leave because of any other problems than bad management, right? Mm -hmm. That's the number one reason for, for leaving a company. Leaving yeah. And it's this, and that was the thing that I realized. It's like, if you really love people, for me, it was like, well, then I have to take on more responsibility and more leadership and I have to push myself. It's, it's, it can't be, you know, if you're, I can't sit and say, I, I mean, my, my childhood was fairly good. I didn't have any big problems to loving parents that helped me a lot. And so I, I think for me, it's, it's kind of this, you've been given all this advantage, you could say, but now the responsibility is yours to lift more mm -hmm. than would be expected, right? You don't, you don't expect a two-year-old to lift what you would expect a 20-year-old. And I think there's some of those things mentally where what challenges can you go through? What hardships can you do in, in trying to make the world a better place? So for me, it was, some of it was, I did engineering because I love to understand the systems and how things work and how to build things. But then I got really frustrated as an engineer when I would have business people who were screwing stuff up, right? The best engineer with a bad business person running the business, that's a failed company. But okay, engineering with a great business person, and you can end up with a phenomenal company. So that's when I went and wanted to learn about business. And that's kind of as I've, I've, I've kind of been I don't know, sucked into leadership roles. 
and those type of things, not because I necessarily want them, but it's more from, I want to help people and I'm very capable in what I do because I'm trying to lift the hardest things I can. And you see something that needs to be done. That That's my, that's what my dad used to tell me growing up. He said, if you see something needs to be done, then it's probably your job to do it. Right. You can't say, oh, you know, hey, you, could you come over here and do this? No, that's not how it works. It's there for you to do. And that's, this is one of the things with my coaching clients is like, you know, they look like, what do I do next? I said, well, what's in front of you? You're looking at the horizon still. What's right in front of you? Whole different picture, right? Now, in this, as you were developing the leadership, you know, there's this um, servant style. There, there's this drive to empower people that hadn't been there. I mean, we came out of last century. <laughs> that sounds so funny. Last century. Mm -hmm. steeped in command and control and competition do you see that changing now i think i see it a little bit in terms of i think i think there's more chaos around it where people are saying i didn't like the old style but they haven't come up with a great style you know you saw that there was all this stuff on the great resignation from people and companies and now they're quiet and they's quiet quitting and then they're losing their jobs now so there's kind of like well, how do I make this work? But I think there's a there's generally a a rebellion against just treating people very poorly, mm -hmm. and but I think we it's don't deserve it for one, right? People are finally and for many years. I remember again, my parents just buck up, right? Just keep your nose down, don't ask questions, just follow the directions, and you know. And now it's like, well, wait a minute. That means we can't ask questions. I don't like that. And especially the younger generations now, they won't put up with it. And that's where this, I find it fascinating, a bit scary, and yet ultimately ultimately beneficial because they're making the choices for their own health and well-being. Yeah, if they're, I think one of the biggest things that people have we've avoided teaching though to some degree is how to think and how to ask good questions mm -hmm. right there's these kids and i think they're going i'm not happy but i don't know why i'm not happy and i don't know the questions to get me out of this funk and that's where we've had the you know the pharmaceutical industry just prescribing pills hey if we give you this pill you'll stop asking the questions you'll oh, stop yeah. being unhappy and it doesn't yeah. solve the underlying problem it's just hiding it and I, I view that like most of the prescriptions that I think we end up taking, it's just like, you know, if you're driving down the freeway and you see the gas light pop on and then you just put a sticker over it, that to me is what we're doing with these pills. You're like, yeah, your consequence is going to be really bad later on, but for the near term, you feel okay. We don't treat the core. We, you know, the uh, what happened to the Hippocratic Oath, right? Look well to the spine, the body be in that place where you're looking at the cause not the symptom and then come at it from you know and as an engineer right problem solving okay what's the matter what's what's not happening that needs to happen and well, then yeah yeah if you look and, yeah and i'm just thinking like when you say that i immediately think like i was when i was working in the business world 
I mean, when I was, I was the COO, everyone was reporting to me and I had access. I knew all of the, how the whole system was working. Right. So I could see the whole company and be like, if we do this in sales, here's how it's going to affect marketing. Here's how it's going to affect our onboarding. Here's how it's going to do. Cause I understood the whole system. Right. And I think in healthcare, we've got all these specialties. You know, I work on just the heart or I'm a podiatrist or I just do this. And, and you've kind of, I don't know that we have necessarily anyone who can, who has the expertise or the skills to look at the entire body and go, just cause it's exhibit, you know, it's, it's something's wrong with your foot, but it could be something up higher. It could be something in some other area that's affecting it. But because we don't have the full system perspective, we're just treating this. Well, okay. I'll just chop off your toes or, you know. Right. I'll just yeah. fix this thing, this symptom, so you'll feel good for a little bit. And unfortunately, um, it's like the meter drop, right? It's the charge for services. It's the profit from the pharmaceuticals and the uh, and the research. Don't dare find a cure because in, then your research money will dry up and you'll have to go find a, a job or your company will fold because you're supported by the research. Uh, those kinds of things seem to be what's held us up because it's provided safety and security financially for those. And that's what hasn't felt right, right? They know something's wrong here, but I've I got to feed my family, hmm. right? So what do I do? Yeah. And I think that's, that's the bigger problem. You go, would I act any differently in that situation? That's always the hard question. You know, you're looking at this going. I have this company, it's worth so many billion dollars. Do I want to put all these people who work there at risk? No. Okay, let's not solve that. So it has some weird contradictions. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it's necessarily evil and like someone's intentionally trying to do it more so they're just more self-interested. And so there's these unintended consequences that we would prefer weren't there. I think you hit it on the head. It's the unintended consequences that we like the oil and gas industry, right? Initially, the fossil fuels great, you know, discoveries and industrial age. And it took us, you know, very far in our, the evolution of our industries and technologies and things like that. However, there was some side effects from it, unintended consequences that started showing up and were noticed by scientists in the fifties and sixties. And they raised a red flag and pretty much every one of them that did got fired because the CEOs of those companies said, and I know of one that uh, gentleman actually was sitting in the boardroom when the CEO said it, I don't want to hear about that science anymore. If it doesn't make us money, I don't want to hear about it. You bring it up again, you're fired. Yeah, it's always, it's, it's just the incentive structure on how we sit and, you know, stocks and ownership and all these type of things. I think it's, it's very complicated and trying to unravel that's it's very unravel this very complicated system. I mean, mm -hmm. if you look at our economy, you look at the constitution, you know, you look at the different government systems. I mean, I've it's interesting for me because I've traveled in China, I've traveled in Russia, you know, India, Philippines, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, all these places. And it's just like there's so many underlying systems that are supported in your country that you don't really understand. And you go, well, it, it sucks here. Okay, well, it really sucks there. I'm so it's always trying to compare and contrast, and then you can't just take those and implement those over in other areas because well, this is what there's they had to do in, in the eighties, right? The American companies that went overseas that wanted to take American culture, supplant it for local culture, and then eighty percent of the companies failed because they didn't consider the local culture. 
but they didn't know that at the time. They figured everybody would just acquiesce to the American culture that they were trying to institute. Didn't work. Did we learn anything? Now, you being the COO and recognizing the holistic system, how did you find that understanding that was either in place or missing as you looked around to other environments that are similar? Because we do that, right? Especially at that level, you're looking around, okay, what's Joe doing? What's, what's Sally doing over there? You know, um, what did you find out? What do you see as a general pattern or maybe even trend? Well, I mean, I think the one industry that a lot of people point to is like the energy industry. And you're like, that is a super complicated system where people, you know, you're like, does anyone have the whole system? Because if I'm an oil company, I have one set of, you know, objectives. And then if I'm a solar company, I have a different set. You know, I've got all of these different incentives. And, you know, if you're looking across that as a country, then you're saying, well, yeah, we need all those. But you need to somehow orchestrate those, it would seem like, or because otherwise, you know, you're like, well, people will say, well, we don't want nuclear. And you're like, okay, well, there's some very, that's pretty cheap and has a lot of very great possibilities for getting rid of a lot of the negative cons consequences of other systems. And yet that's putting a whole industry out of work and then it's giving another one power. So that's, I think, the bigger challenge when you're doing well, and It's also kind of interesting that, you know, that's a destructive process uh, in order to produce. Well, is that really safe? Do we, you know, because we've, and everything that we've found, we have determined what it is through destructive testing. Uh, is that really smart? You know, like with the uh, Haldron um, collider, right? And when they found the Higgs boson, or supposedly thought they did, right? The, the data showed that there was something, some kind of trail left so they assumed that there was a particle that left that trail, never considering that a subatomic explosion of running two protons together at near light speed is going to rip a hole or rip something in the fabric of dimensions, right? We have M-theory. We have a multi-dimensional, multi you know, quantum theory. Well, what's the fabric in between those? Is there something there? And could that also show up as a rip? self-repairing rather than a particle disappearing that then gives mass to others you know that logic there just kind of seems a little faulty to me i don't know about you however most people believe that they found the god particle you know i found the god participle you know what that is okay being English language, participle, you take a verb, you put an ing on it, it becomes a noun. Yes. <laughs> I have yeah, a problem think... with that. She was an English teacher. Right? So, um, and I, that, you know, I explore everything and I play around with pretty much everything and, and everything's sacred. Nothing is sacred in that respect because we need to see that way. That doesn't mean we can't be reverent toward it and respect what it is not try to destroy it in order to figure out how it's made do we do that with our bodies well 
I wouldn't say death, we do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, after death, during, you know, there's some experimentation, there's testing. I think it's a tricky, um, it's a tricky moral perspective on a lot of those cases because you're mm -hmm. saying, if I don't understand how it works, I can't protect people from it. But in order to, you know, it's this, it's the, just do the means justify the ends? If I can save a million people by killing one, you know, that's, I think, a lot of the stuff that the medical field often plays with. And I think it's interesting as you look through that system, like, well, how, how else do we learn stuff? By things falling apart, right? You know, how do you learn what's in your clock? Well, when it breaks, you usually don't learn until it breaks. Then you pull it apart and you're like, could I put it back together? No, but I have a better sense of how it would work. And so I think there's, it's an interesting case where, yeah, we're kind of playing with, well, let's just keep smashing these things to see what's in them. But at some point we may have an, a scientific problem where we cause a bigger issue than we had hoped for. Right. And yet there's some old technology that's been around and tested. It seems to work. Not like the Tesla technologies that were developed that just produce energy out of nothing right and that's the one thing that that was surprising to me um i guess i'm kind of known as a um, ufology researcher of sorts and i've been one my entire life well one of the uh, documents i found that was uh, memoirs from the uh, his name was wilbert smith he ran the um what was it called project magnet it was like canada's blue book uh, funded by the Ministry of Transportation. And in that, during his time in the 1950s, he talked to people from elsewhere, is what he called them. And one of the things that they'd said was that um, we live half inside and half outside. We don't recognize that that's happening. And as I, you know, the Hyman is a measurement of the change of entropy and that our point of awareness we produce reality based on what level of awareness we have. So these are things that as the, that trickle down, kind of like what you're saying, we don't know what's happening. Well, if we ask questions and then shut up, because we tend to answer things with thoughts or systems, like Einstein says, you can't fix a system with the same thinking that broke it, right? Or, or he didn't say that exactly, but really similar right mm -hmm. so there's a shift there's a raising there's a revolution of uh, consciousness that's taking place and filtering back back through industry right now with all these new leadership ideas and best practices do you see that as a potential to at least present the possibility of doing things differently and, and depending on the facilitator or the leader or the company president right um or board of directors do you see that kind of situation helping that i i do i think it's it's still challenging because there's been cases where i've seen people where they were doing a job that i knew they didn't want to do but it was comfortable to them it was damaging to their career so then I ended up, then I went and I would, I talked to him and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to let, we're going to let you go. We're going to fire you primarily because A, you're really expensive in this job relative to other people, but you're also not in a role you want to be in. 
And so I think there's this contrast. If you have kind of a long view, then you can look at some of those things and say, that was a great experience for me to lose mm -hmm. my job. And it actually pushed my career forward. And even though I wasn't willing to quit my job because it meant stepping into the unknown, somebody, this person loved me enough to do this for me, right? And that's where I think there's a lot of perspective where if you don't have perspective and, and a little bit more complicated thinking, you look at everything from a very simplistic perspective of that person fired me, they're bad. Mm -hmm. Versus, you know, you see this with your children, as I've raised my children, you do things to them that are challenging to them that will make them stronger, even if in the moment it's difficult. That's the thing that they need. And so there's this contrast, I think, where people, it, this is the where I look into the family stuff that's so interesting. It's like, I told my wife at one point, my job as a father is to kind of be the spotter for my son, you know, putting more weight on him and helping him so he doesn't kill himself with it, but always trying to push him so that he gets stronger whether that's mentally, physically, spiritually, right? Yeah. Because that's really what you're trying to do. And the pushback but, from the kids is that excruciatingly fun process, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not fun, but in retrospect, that's where people, I get caught up. A lot of people seem like they're chasing happiness, which seems like, well, I'm not happy right now. Am I happy when I'm in the middle of weightlifting? Is, is my wife happy when she's in the middle of pregnancy? You know, there's these life experiences that you look back on and you say, I'm glad I went through that. But in the moment, it's not happy. You know, mm -hmm. it's like you understand it's part of the process. And you could you can look at that and say it's fulfilling or I feel like I'm fulfilling my purpose. But it's not in the moment, happy and joyful and, oh, I feel so great. No, you're in pain. Right, right. Well, like you said before, long-term view, right? Everything's temporary and transitory. When we can see that as such, then we get through those processes and, and everything has a pattern. And if we're going through similar patterns, we can begin to recognize that. It's kind of like scientific method. It's not necessarily the data that's reproduced, but the pattern is. And once we learn that pattern, we can use it many different ways because it's effective what you do anywhere, you do everywhere kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So in that, how do you see this um, building up of desire to what I think I hear you saying, align skill set with attitude and aptitude in job placements, right? Or in the hiring and the onboarding process. How do you check for organizational culture fit? and also the, the skill set, aptitude, and attitude fit. Well, I think this is where I didn't see it on the, uh, when I started doing a lot more hiring, you know, I interviewed so many people and we came up with, here's our company culture. Here's the type of people who are going to excel here and going to enjoy it. And mm. then when I would interview people, I would talk to them about, ask them questions to see, do you fit? We had five values and I'd be like, you know, we're a young, small startup. We, I mean, we're 20 people. We, we're not this big, huge organization where it's an eight to five. There's just weird stuff that comes up. Things have to get done. You know, you may need to travel randomly. And so there was this, are you driven in these ways? So it's kind of looking at the organizational culture and saying, are they a good fit for our company? And I know it sucks on the other side when you're like, Gee, I need a job. That fun to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, on the other side, you're like, I need a job. I need a job. And a lot of times when you're in that space, you're not 
you're not really looking at the company and saying, is this a good fit for me? So I think most people, as they're interviewing, they're not actually doing the legwork to go, yeah, I interviewed with them. I don't want that job. You know, even if they offer it to me, I don't want the job because they haven't thought through themselves. What are my values and what are my priorities? What's my purpose? That's kind of the core thing I think is like, what's your strategy or your purpose in life that you're trying to um, exhibit, right. you know, that then if you don't have that, then you're going to end up in some weird spaces. But I think it's, it's a little bit of people being more aware of what are you actually going to looking for? And the second piece is, are you willing to get there? Like everyone wants to look super muscle, you know, like have a great body, have a great mind. The reason those are so cool is because we all know to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger takes a whole lot of time and energy. Discipline. And discipline. To have a mind that's amazing, like an Elon Musk, you look at him and you're like, he has been through so much. I think a normal human seems like they would have collapsed, but that guy just keeps going through it. And you go, you know, is that the place? Am I willing to put that in? And being kind of self-aware enough to know what you're looking for as an when you're trying to get jobs and then being able to filter filter out employers the same way because when you get a good match it, it's a great place and you have a lot of fun that's how it was for me personally at that job i think it was our four or four and a half years it was really a lot of fun there was challenges but that's what i wanted right i didn't want to the, the challenge the fun the excitement um, and from a place of OD, the organizational development, you know, I've always in both, in aligning the hard and soft skills, right? You find someone that has the talent, that has the, the aptitude and, and the type, or at least seems to fit with the culture and you support them, you turn them loose, right? The, the, because that freedom, I think, especially at the level uh, of activity that, in technology, right? There's a certain amount of autonomy, right? And like you were saying, there's all the different scheduling and, and especially if you've got a, um, a build schedule, right? It has some contiguous, not just continuous items, right? Where certain things can happen and still something else does. And that time is always flexible as to when it's gonna happen. So the next trigger that takes place may happen at midnight. Right. And it's got to get done. So that adaptability needs to be in place as well. And that sometimes is hard to find. However, I wonder how you would access that. What are the kinds of things that you've found for you that allowed that curiosity and exploration into how that long-term vision can be backed out into short-term goals and individual steps to get there. Yeah, I think the, to me, it's it's really trying to get a little more specific on those vision pieces. <laughs> like, okay, here's my long-term purpose. And I think when we're young, I think when I was just got had just gotten married, it was like, I just want to stay above water. <laughs> okay, I have a wife. How are we going to make this thing work? And you're, you know, just like in a startup, when you first start a company, you're not looking at, well, what's our 30 year plan for this thing? You're like, we need to freaking figure something out in the next month too. We need to be learning on a much higher frequency than, you know, Google or Apple, who are these behemoth companies that are moving. 
So if you're looking at that, it's like, well, I need to be learning quickly and I need to look at my vision, not in terms of years, but in terms of probably weeks. But then as the company, you, you prove some things out, you have revenue, those type of things, then you need to extend it out. And I think that's the same with us in our, in our own lives. It's in the short term, you know, when you're 18, you're night, you're figuring things out. And then as We're you become more managers of our own lives and, and we don't realize the, the depth and understanding that it takes in order to do that. Because mm -hmm. as I've found, and, and you probably have too, I don't know how many other, or, or you've been outside the technology industry. I've been in multiple education technology events, aerospace. And what I find is that even in relationships, that top tier knowledge, structure, project management understanding filters through everything. And the more you can understand that, the better you can plan, strategize, prepare. That way, when the kerfuffles happen, right, you're not completely caught off guard. Exactly. That's part of what, I mean, as I write, the, when I wrote the book, it's not so much like, here's how to do family according to me. It's much more, here's the business principles that you can apply to family because so many businesses do it differently. And you see project management, it's very different if you're in these small, you know, oh, I'm doing this project and it's, these are week long projects versus I'm going to go build this huge pipeline. This is a 10 or 15 year project, you know, or building these skyscrapers. So I think it's, it's like, well, can you take those skills that you've developed in business and how do you apply those into your family? Because if you're not project managing and you're not saying, well, what's my long-term goal? I think so many people are sad in their lives or not happy with their life, not because the work they're doing, it's because there's no purpose and therefore they're just doing work and they're not, there's not fulfillment from that purpose. I mean, I've done clean toilets, you know, wash, wash dishes, serve food, you know, the worst tasks you can think, but those were towards my purpose and therefore it was fulfilling for me. But if you have no purpose, Life can be just like an endless mm -hmm. hellscape, kind of. Do you see that there is a noticeable difference between those who have only financial goals and those who have experience goals? Uh, yes, I think, because I, I went through this process. When I was younger, it was, I just want to get money. Because I think as a, when I was married and I had children, it's like, I need to get the money right. Otherwise... There's huge problems in the relationships that I want, in the experiences and the skills I want to develop. Right. So, yeah, you, I think the financial, just like in a company, that's the first thing that has to get handled. But at some point you go, well, that's handled or now we can't neglect these other areas of, of the family and of our lives, because if we do, your life becomes meaningless. And so that's where I think a lot of it, and I call it, like you say, financial, I call that financial resources, but then I call there's so social resources, which is your relationships, you know, with other people. Then you also have your human resources, which is what abilities, you know, what, what, what do you want to do with your time? And then your health, mental, physical, and spiritual. And if you neglect any one of those resource classes, you end up in a bad spot, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I just got financial. Oh, but my wife hates me. My kids hate me and I'm sick. Yeah, because well, it took a, too much time to make that money, right? Yeah, I was it's, it's, the family and not there. Yeah, so it's not a holistic perspective. And that's where I think you've got to be 
I do see some people focus too much on the experience. Oh, I so want to travel to Rome. Okay, what are you trying to get out of that experience? Well, I don't know. Everyone just does it. I want to go to Paris. If there's not something that's intentional for you beyond, well, other people told me to, I don't think that's a great goal either. So I think it's a lot about getting some clarity on your long-term purpose and then looking at those resources and say, what resources do I need to, to have to fulfill that purpose? And how do those resources, how, how do we, what might you suggest is a good way to start the internal process of seeking those resources? What are the kinds of questions that are best asked before things start falling apart? apart? Well, I think, I think the big thing is like, if you're saying, do you want, how much money do you really want? Because I, when I, I went down this path of, when I was young, save money. And then when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad from Robert Kiyosaki, it's like, no, you want financial freedom. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. It doesn't matter. I could have a hundred million dollars, but if I'm spending 20 every year, I'm still screwed. Right? So it's like, how are you defining your financial goal? How are you defining your social goals? What kind of relationships do you want with your family, with your groups, religious groups, sports groups, you know, what other groups? And then what type of reputation do you have, do you want to have? And then also, then you look at your human resources. What type of skills do you want developed? How do you want to use your time? And what do you want your health to look at? Once you kind of define the goals holistically, then you realize there's always trade-offs, right? I can always spend my time to make more money, but I'm doing it potentially at the cost of my relationships with my kids right. and my wife. So it's, it's much more, this is very much an engineering perspective. You're always trying to balance your resources to get what you want. But if you don't know what you want, it's hard. So first you have to get clarity on that. And then once, then you can look at the resources and how those are being utilized. It's kind of, and talk about this, reviewing the, the situation you were talking about where a person just didn't quite fit, right? And doing a great job. So it reminded me of, uh, and what you're saying now reminded me of a mentor's comment to me one time said, why should you be doing something well that which you shouldn't be doing at all. Now, yes. when that that's kind of what you're talking about, right? That takes a really stalwart individual that can make those hard choices and be okay and not linger in the, oh my God, did I do the right thing, right? Because then you're, you're dragging that past along with you and you're probably gonna cause problems in your future by doing so the best thing is to how would how would you handle that what would you suggest as far as being able to step into that power or that self love to achieve greater things yeah to your point about i call it efficiency versus effective right mm -hmm. if you're going the wrong direction at 100 miles an hour you're you're really effective or really efficient but horribly ineffective Right. And you see, you, you see that with a lot of people in our society when they don't connect to their purpose, you know, they're, if they're, they're, I've seen a number of, I think this is a curse, very obvious now in society where you see a lot of women who go so hard on their career and they're like, I'm phenomenal. Okay. I'm 35. I'm VP. I'm making really good money. I have no kids. I have no spouse. And then I'm, well, what now I'm in this trap of, I don't want to stop doing my career, but you're, you're in this trap of, but you've over-prioritized 
what you where you want to where you now want to be right so that's the thing is well you, now, i is think there's a choice um sorry to interrupt but it, is that choice based on or the the confusion within the choice based on a belief system that may not be appropriate for that person yet they're carrying it because that's the way the world says you need to be a little bit with the world i think it's also a function of so many people are growing up in dysfunctional homes right now mm -hmm. where they've either had a dad who left and didn't support the mom so then the mom is struggling so as a child you're watching your mother struggle and you're going i can't trust men if you're a woman i can't trust men with my financial security therefore it's got to be all on my shoulders mm -hmm. so i don't know that it's 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 really a function and you've seen this spiraling of you know single parent households we were at like five percent in the white community i think 25 percent back in the 60s and now the african-american community is up at 75 80 percent single parent households and some of the other communities are in the 25 30 percent range so you're seeing this cycle of people being raised in those environments and going well what did i learn i can't trust men and for for men oh i learned that you know, it's not my job to be here with, you know, take care of the woman because my dad was never here. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of this cyclical nature that I think is pretty dangerous. In the business world, we would call that the death spiral, right? right. <laughs> Where it, it's a reinforcing spiral. And that's, and the other problem you have in the family is if you don't grow up in a two-parent household, you don't understand what you need to do in terms of negotiation, conflict resolution, working through those things, which then makes you less prepared to be married yourself and i think it also makes it more difficult in the business world because the business world is full of compromise and negotiation yeah. to get what you need marriage or not you don't know about how to have healthy relationships <laughs> because you're skewed um as well as other things uh, so how do you see that cycle because they're you know as we talked before everything's transitory the, the temporary and transitory that temporary and transitory period may be longer in some situations than others and usually we have a pendulum swing as far as societal norms and trends and things like that going from one side to the other including um you know going from a patriarchal system now there's more of a matriarchal seeking if you will and the emotional mm -hmm. intelligence that's very matriarchal um, mm -hmm. and that's a big thing in business today and what is really assisting that process the transition from going to being uncomfortable in um, speaking your truth or sharing your feelings to now having circles in the business of, of having those kinds of discussions and even like Otto Sharma does with the theory you uh, of the co-presencing where you kind of get out of the way of the ego you just look at what's happening and you quietly come together with the uh, to form a prototype to take care of that question or solution or problem I find that fascinating that even in business now we're looking at this is the application of quantum theories right we're all connected so that information that infinite intelligence that it's available that we all believe is there now we have access to it gosh well, well and this is 
there's a company called, if you're familiar with, in the video gaming world called Valve, they do Steam Gaming, and they have no managers, right? It's a very weird structure. But the thing that they do is they only hire senior level people. So it's this interesting structure where if you hire people who are already connected, who already have the discipline to be effective, who already have that, then you kind of, you know, everyone, if they're on a higher plane, can work together because they know how to do like you're saying, oh, there's a problem, great, I'll jump in, we'll create a group, we solve the problem, then we dissipate back. We're not trying to create a fiefdom of, well, now I'm this, and now we're going to make a department for this, now I'm going to become a VP or a senior VP, because that's because of that structure. But now, that's, is that the same structure that DHOC used for for Visa initially? I think he calls it the chaotic. I, I'm not. I, I haven't read. I haven't read on Visa doing it. I just know Steam has. I think Steam is still doing it, and they've done it for about 20 years. Right. Right. But it was started by engineers who had made money at Microsoft, and they're like, "We just want people to be agents unto themselves." Mm -hmm. Right. Well, it's flatline management or no management, as you're saying where you hire the people with the skill sets and they seek problems to solve. Mm -hmm. But they and have they, a lot of experience. And they cluster in teams to do so and then dissipate. Yeah, but they have the experience right. of, because of, you know there's only senior level people. And that's where you look at that same structure and you go, well, if you did, I mean, just take our, our family as the smallest unit. I don't run my family like a democracy because kids are idiots. Right. They don't know what's good for them. If I, if I ask my kids, Hey, what should we shop for? Okay. We end up with candy and all this stuff that's going to make us all sick and die. Right? right. So there's a point when, once the kids have matured that then you can trust them. And I think that's where we see in society. It's like, are you able to exist in this society? You know, like if you went into an environment and they say at valve, some of the people they hire don't, don't work for it. They're like, who's my boss? They're like, you have no boss. Well, then what should I do? Uh, figure it out. Go talk to other people. And they just don't like it and they end up quitting. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea like you have to have the right culture because so many people, I mean, if you go through our school system, it's not, hey, go figure out what you want to do. It's no, I don't care what you want to do. You're doing what we want you to do for the next 12 years of your life. And then, hey, if you want to go to college, we'll have more people tell you what to do. And then you want to go to med school. I mean, you can talk 15, 20 years plus of your life just learning what someone said and then regurgitating it to them. And then they give you a star and then you move on. Right. So I think it's And you're a lot limited of... to that system that you've learned. And unless you're curious enough to look outside that system simultaneously as you're learning to compare what else is happening during that. And, and that's a neurodiverse characteristic, right? Which we didn't have a lot of because it was like, follow the rules, trust your leaders, right? I, my dad's generation, that's what they did. You know, it, it's like you vote for somebody, you trust them, you let them go and you don't pay attention to what's happening because you know they're gonna do the right thing. Well, now we found out that doesn't work. <laughs> so we're figuring that out on a major scale coming out of COVID as the world's economic system is shifting, not just the workplace scenarios, as those are kind of contiguous in it and they're in the happening. Um, how do you see that evolving and, and what might you suggest as to things to look for or questions to ask 
or perceptions to have as this is evolving in order to have a better, for lack of a better seat at the table? Well, a lot of it, there's some demographic shifts. If you look at aging, you know, we talk about aging Americans and how our society is getting older, but we're actually fairly healthy. There's a guy named Peter Zion who I've watched a lot of his stuff. And he talks about, if you look at countries like China, Italy, Japan, these countries have massive demographic challenges where they just don't have enough children coming up to do the work. And so some of these changes are actually being driven by these population dynamics or also gender dynamics that cause some bigger problems. I mean, I, I kind of think like the, a lot of the stuff that we're seeing now, like you're saying this push towards feminism, up until 1940, looking at the census records, there was always more men in the United States than women. Therefore, you know, if you had a bad husband, there was somebody else there for you. Right. But then we've got to more women, and then you throw in incarceration rates and some other factors, and you end up with, well, we have a lot more women than men. And that's where you start to see men, when there's more women than men in a society, men tend to get lazier. Because yeah, they well, can maybe get polygamy bad. is not that bad of an idea, right? <laughs> well, I'm not saying that. It's just if you look at I, and even I know. China, and, and that's the, even to go to that. I mean, we have enough problems with individual relationships. When you start compounding that with others, that just seems like a nightmare. Unless you're emotionally void. Yeah, and and that's the complicating. That's where people are like, we're rational we're just these rational beings who can not have any feelings. And you're like, no, you can, I mean, a number of people who are like, oh, I'm going to have an open marriage. Okay. And then it's, now I have no marriage. Right. You know, it's because you're going, you're, you're not taking into account all the factors at, at play, but I think the demographic shifts are, are massive. I mean, if you look at the general numbers right now for China, it's going to be half the size by 2100. Mm -hmm. And you look at that going, well, we had Detroit that shrunk in size a ton, and it was horrible for people there. So what's going to happen to China? Japan's in the same boat. You know, you go through these things, and you're like, a shrinking number of people has really weird consequences that we're not aware of. And if you look in the dating market, you know, like, you'll see people like guys where there's a lot of women are just like, hey, let's go have sex. They have sex on the first date. They're not into long-term relationships. And for a lot of women who are interested, they're like, man, all these men are treating me like crap. Well, it's because there's just so many of you. Right. And if, if you don't want to be treated that way, you don't get into a relationship. Well, and, and nobody's asking questions. They're not, here, here's what, uh, let me ask you this. <laughs> Do you feel like, yeah, I, I, I have a tendency to, you know, ramble. Um, however, do you feel like this kind of activity is something that um, is, precipitated by a lack of I'll, I'll put it this way through unspoken and unfulfilled expectation right because we don't talk about stuff we don't set boundaries we don't say i like this i don't like that i don't like it i don't like things when you do this it's not you know we, we generally take things too personally somebody says i don't like that about you well it's not you it's the behavior that they don't like, mm -hmm. right? So either you change behavior or find some place where that behavior is compatible. Yeah. Now, 
do you see that that's maybe one of the core problems too is that we're really you know we have a failure to communicate uh i think there's a piece i think it's again going back to what is what are you personally trying to accomplish in your life yeah if i was saying like if we were in the business world and i said hey Zen, let's start a business together i'll do sales and you do sales and then we'd be like well, that sucks who's going to do the the development of the system. We need two people who have a synergy here. Right. And it would be obvious. And so in a business, we would think that through. But it seems like now in relationships, people are sitting on apps going, oh, that person's hot, that person's hot, cool, whatever. They're not looking at this saying, would this be a good family partner? Like they want to make money and I want to invest in children and do this side. Okay, we have a synergy here together where we can both be in business of this family and both accomplish our goals by doing complementary tasks. Mm -hmm. So I don't think people are even that thoughtful about their relationships of what they're trying to achieve. I think it's almost like people are, are becoming much more short-sighted in their partner selection technique. Like I'm just trying to get in a relationship because I feel bad not being in one. And they're not looking at this going, but do you really share common values? Do you have common goals? Are you driving towards something together? You know, you talk about, we were talking before about your wife and you're like, you and her seem like you're on the same trajectory, going the same place, have this, have similar long-term goals. So you have like a life partner. But if and you get in talked about it, right. That's the main thing from the get-go. When we began our relationship, I stated, you know, that our core is faith, love, and trust. That's how we came together. So anytime there's a kerfuffle or, or a mix up or whatever, let's remember to have enough presence of mind to go back to that place. One of us at least has enough presence of mind to go back to that place or to just realize that in those moments where emotions get heated and things are said that it is again, temporary and transitory. It doesn't reflect on the long-term aspect of the relationship or the depth of the love. And sometimes the depth of love allows that freedom to express your emotions in the moment and the vulnerability, the safety in the vulnerability to do so. Mm -hmm. Well, and you can also appreciate to me that the benefit of getting in a relationship, if you're doing complementary things, mm -hmm. you know, if you and I were in business and you're doing sales and I'm doing development, I'm like, I'm so glad you're doing sales because I hate talking to people all the time. And you're like, I'm so glad you're doing this development because I don't like to sit in front of a computer all the time. And we can both appreciate each other and man, good job, good job. We can just build each other up because we understand we're both in the same the you know, boat. Happened. Yeah, we're and we're yeah, and we're both in the same boat. If you we do well, we both win. And I think in, if we look in the family, the same thing. Well, what is she doing? What are you doing? They're prop they shouldn't be the same. The dishwasher doesn't need to be unloaded twice. You know? right. and so you go, she's taking care of these things, you know. And in a rainstorm, I was up on the roof because the roof's leaking. And my wife, I don't want her up there because I want to protect her. And then I come down and she goes, thank you so much for taking care of that. So we can appreciate the differences so much more. And it seems like so what, what people have done is be like, well, let's pick women and call women. Now women need to work and women need to do all the same things as men. And now men are, need to do the same things. You're like, this is boring. Everyone's trying to do the same job. No one's complimentary. There's no beneficial synergy here and then you say like why are we unsuccessful well there's less to appreciate if you and i are doing the same job and we're just competing all the time right 
Now, this is one of the things that Dudley Lynch um, wrote a book called The Strategy of the Dolphin back in the 80s. It was an OD uh, organizational development um, scenario and, and great book. And then the, about a decade or so later, he wrote a book called The Mother of All Minds. And in that, he presents that we have an alpha chassis in mind as of, let's say, last century, right? Mm -hmm. And now we have a beta mind in an alpha chassis. The alpha mind was steeped in competition. The beta mind understands the concept of oneness, right? Which is what we're talking about it, and loosely. And, and it, oneness is not necessarily nebulous. It has to do with the harmony of the situation and the synergy that produces that oneness of character uh, and exampling of an organization or of a relationship. doesn't really matter, right? Everything's working together the way it does best and, and, and is self-improving. Because hmm. the system asks the right questions of itself. Yeah. And, that, and there's an interesting place where, I mean, when I look at competition, I was having this discussion with my daughter and my son-in-law, where competition, I think, is useful in some ways to see what's possible. Yeah. Right? When you see someone else, you know, when I look at, if I compare myself, not that I'm in a competition with Elon Musk, I'm like, that's possible. Then I can look at all the trade-offs he's made. If I see someone lift an ama amazing amount of weight, that's possible. Now, if I'm sitting there just like, oh, I suck because I'm not as rich as Elon Musk, or I can't lift that much weight, that's not useful because I look at it and say, I go, well, how did he get there? And now can I take those same steps to get there? Mm -hmm. But I think it, when we say co all competition isn't bad, I think it's, again, how we perceive it as, am I sitting here saying, I want to win at all costs, you know, like Tanya Harding, let me attack my competitors just so I can win <laughs> physically right. cheap. That's, that's the depth of the atrocities around competition mm -hmm. right where you're war that's a competition right why do we need that um however the competition even you know sports and and classrooms you know developing you know just seeing how you can push yourself not you're necessarily trying to beat the other person but you want to do your best right mm -hmm. and that other person is kind of pushing you to do so because that that's just kind of what happens well as you grow up you realize there's no ego without we go because you're not alone you've got to establish you know the ego is, is kind of a protector right it's not vulnerable because it wants to protect itself at all costs self-importance if you will however the only way you can really go somewhere and feel fulfilled as if you're interacting with others to do so because you need their help right yeah so well we adjust and, and take that to a, a, a new level in, in our society and, and from what you're seeing in the industry do you see that happening i see it happening i mean when i there was a book i read called comparative advantage and it talked about how toyota they spent a lot less, they were, they kind of viewed their suppliers as arms of them. They didn't spend a lot of time negotiating price. They spent a lot more time negotiating with improvements. You know, like, how do we improve our system? How do we make these seats better? How do we have our relationship very close? And so what that caused was 
the co-location of their suppliers very close because there was high levels of trust. Was that the American, Demings work? Uh, some of it was, the early Toyota stuff was Demings, but I don't know that the comparative advantage in the way they approached suppliers was. Mm -hmm. But you contrasted that with the American suppliers and they're like, okay, you make bolts for us every year. You gotta, we gotta bid up. And if someone beats you by a 10th of a penny, we're going with them. And so there was a different relationship. And so I think what we're seeing in the market generally is that mentality is losing. I mean, Toyota's crushing it or has been for a long time because they're so collaborative and because they trust their 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 partners Gosh, I mean, much more. You're trading with people. You want to trust them. It builds the peace, right? And it wouldn't it just make sense that it's much more beneficial to collaborate than to compete? You know, WorldCom, you're familiar with them, and maybe the viewers aren't, but WorldCom was another telecom back in the 80s, I think it was, early 90s, and they imploded because one of their managers had a piece of software that would allow all the division offices to talk to each other and he wouldn't share it, right? So well, the whole system just imploded because it wasn't able to have interaction. Yeah, and, and this whole element of trust, I don't think, I, I've read a lot, there's a book called Trust, I don't remember the author, but I, it's interesting because when I, I, I lived over in Russia for two years and it was fascinating because when I went to the store to buy food, everything was behind a counter. You had to go add up the different, you know, oh, I need to do this. This is going to be 35 rubles. But then I needed to go pay for it, get my receipt, then take it to a woman who was standing between me and the stuff. She would look at it. She would pull it off the counter and give it to me. And then in a case where I bought like an electric hand beater for cakes, I bought the mixer and the guy pulls it off the shelf. Then he opens it up, pushes everything together, plugs it in, turns it on to show that it works. And I go... What the freak are you doing? That's usually the, my experience of opening it. And I just didn't realize how little trust they had that they could return it or it worked or any of these things. Because in our system, we make those assumptions over there, they don't. And so, or they didn't at the time. So I think there's a lot of trust in the system and certain cultures, like especially I think in Russia, a lot of it was driven by the kind of the communist regime and how they infiltrated so many of the organizations with the secret police. Yeah, or people it didn't. can also be just trust but verify, right? How much have we heard that? And that's, I mean, that seems like a perfect illustration uh, on a very simple level of that kind of mentality, right? Yeah, you trusted us there, but let's make sure. And that's and that's a little bit. I mean, if you actually understand a lot of the crypto stuff, a lot of it's trying to do just that. How do I trust you if I don't know that I can trust you? So then they usually have mechanisms to do that, right? And so. I, but I think trust is so important. But once you have the trust, you're to the point about, you know, Toyota in that, in a relationship, whether that's a personal relationship or whether it's a corporate relationship, it becomes so much easier to do business with them because you know, Hey, if I make a mistake and pay you too much, you're going to come back to me and we'll, we'll just make it even, or if something happens, we'll work this out mm -hmm. and ha not having that trust slows down the speed of everything in your society. And that's, so that's where I see it's, yeah, you want to collaborate, but then you have the bad actors who take advantage of that. And then you end up in a bad spot where you're like, and that's where I think you, you see even in the relationships, like women who have 
been taken advantage of by a man or abandoned by a man. And then they're like, well, that one bad actor is going to spoil it for a, a number, maybe generations. Isn't that where discernment develops? And if we didn't have those situations, we wouldn't have the discernment, right? So long-term, that could be beneficial. Not that anything is good or bad. It's how we think it to be, right? Mm -hmm. So it's being able to see the value for that intrinsic learning, I, I suppose, at least for me, right? Because it makes my life a heck of a lot easier seeing things that way. And and I'm much happier in doing something, right? Yeah, yeah, but that's the thing that was interesting. I've, and I read, there's a number of books I've read, and you just look at the U.S. is is culturally oddly trusting. And we also like to make groups. That's one of the big things that they took. They're like, we trust each other much more than other countries. And we like to group together really pretty easily. And that's why you see like, oh, company formation can be quick. Oh, there's a lot of trust in the environment. We also have some of the legal system to work some of those things. So it just makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that's where I was like, I hadn't thought, I hadn't figured that. But it, when I went back and I was like, oh, it was a trust thing in Russia. We, I never even thought that I would, I never even thought about those things since I grew up in the U.S. Right. And the what you perceived at the level of trust or the reason, cause for, question may not be the same as what you perceived as well. Sure. Um, I mean, because things, Hawkins Razor, right? The simplest answer is usually the right one. And it may be just because they were still in transition, they weren't really trusting the manufacturers because they didn't have oh, yeah. the, the TQM that, that we do, right? ISO 9000 series, uh, total quality management, uh, continuous improvement programs, and all those kinds of things that were hot in the 80s and 90s and, and even beyond, uh, that put in a whole different level of, you know, what is it, um, Six Sigma even, right? Mm -hmm. There's very few rejects, you know, and, and uh, as a machinist in the aircraft industry, uh, the funny phrase was, ah, oh, it's close enough for government work. Because if it made it through to final inspection and it was out of size or needed to be reworked, you got more time, right? And there wasn't the, oh, let's make sure it's done and done right so that we make more parts and increase our profit, which ends up back in our pocket, hopefully through raises and so on and so forth. That kind of attitude isn't, you know, especially when you got a bunch of union guys that are transitioning from the Midwest and working in the southwest now in a non-union state they're like okay just stick with the peace rate right don't go beyond it because it doesn't matter right and you could be able to you know two three times peace rate and still it was like no we're going to hold it back because this is how you know we were taught well and that's and that's a piece that's one of the things that i think is very interesting and in the book that I helped the guy write before, it was talking about business formation and entrepreneurship levels, mm -hmm. you know, based on your family. And what we're, what you're finding is your family culture will have a ton to do with how easy it is for you to start a business. And if you even have the belief that you can start a business, right? right? You, you If you have a strong family and you're like, oh, I want to start a business, you can, they may fund you financially. They could give you social connections and even the culture of your company which is one of the three main important parts of a business model, you'll have a good culture. How do I treat people? How do I deal with power? 
if you have those things from your family, then you can transfer those over to your business. But if you have a bad set, a dysfunctional set that's incompatible with a business, then you're going to have a lot higher levels of failure if you start and you probably just won't start as many either. Well, and vice versa too. If you don't necessarily have a strong upbringing and you happen to find yourself in a company that has a different kind of a, a let's say an alternative way of being, alternative culture, right? That's more consistent with what we're talking about. Then you pick things up there, right? Because I, I, one of the things that I learned is that each job that I had made my life change because I saw different things as a result. Because hmm. there, there's that, you know, this is, you know, again, what you do anywhere, you do everywhere, right? We don't leave work at work. That's impossible. There are thoughts, there are feelings, there are things that we take with us. We don't leave our relationship as home. That's impossible. There are thoughts and feelings, of, right? So there's this crossover. There's this constant bridging that takes place. How do you... Do you see that's recognizable? First of all, is are there discussions about that crossover and how it really imbues life with a much richer flavor and better consistency in how things come together, both in the relationship and in the business world? Yeah, well, I think at a personal level, if you're trying to live one culture in your business life and a different set of values or culture, in your personal life, you're going to have incongru incongruencies there that are going to cause you a lot of mental stress and it'll hurt your mental health. And so I think it's, how are you managing that? And even talking with your wife, I looked at, when I work with my wife, I mean, we have our business that we've been doing Irish dance, but then there was places when I worked at Ancestry and I went over to India and a few other countries for three weeks out of the year. So now those dynamics all change. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're constantly in flux and constantly working and you need that support in certain areas. And if you're looking at this like, hey, like to my wife, here's what I need to do for the business. Here's why I'm doing this for the family. Therefore, we need to make sacrifices. It'll be tough. OK, but if I'm like, well, this is just for me and I'm not communicating it, then you're going to have some bigger problems. Sure. So I look at it and going and, and you'll see some of the data, you know, like married men tend to make more money than single men. And you're like, well, why would that be? Well. I think it's because you have married men are being supported by their wife, who's usually making sure they get better sleep, making sure they eat better food, making sure they have better habits. They're not chasing women late at night. So you just see this, like, you're not really hiring a single person when you're hiring a married man, you're hiring, you know, a person and his support group. And some foundation. Mm -hmm. Right. Do you see that there's a, oh, maybe a, a a desire that may be a little strong, but at least a will, uh, maybe a willingness to explore more dynamics of how we think and feel and interact and how we can be more vulnerable in the workplace and, and in relationships. Because there seems to be some trending, you know, like we're talking about medical industry and how the specialization tends to kind of fragment it and the holistic system that's ought to be there probably isn't. Is it possible that, or do you see these kinds of things? And I know you're in a, um, probably a different area than, than most because of the realm uh, um, and the associations and, and your social life and, and your spiritual life as well. Um, 
do you see that kind of filtering out into society at, at large, the willingness to investigate further, to ask questions, to be willing and, and vulnerable, uh, and to show up more in, in uh, greater fearlessness? Um, I think there is a little bit. The bigger problem I think that people have is that they don't have the skills necessarily to communicate that. Does that make sense? Yes, They're like absolutely. They have less skills, but they want to get more out of it. And so it's like, if you don't have those negotiation skills, it's hard to deal with that. Like, yeah, I want a deeper relationship, but I don't have the skills currently to get to that. So I think there's a general frustration that a lot of people are going through. Well, now do you feel that that general frustration is making people reticent to seek help or promote it? Uh, I, th and that I think the socioeconomic level too, depending on where you're at. Yeah. I think generally, I mean, societally in terms of what we call mental health, there seems to be a big promotion towards that, but I don't know that it's just mental health. I think a lot of it's skill development and I'm not sure that we're as focused on skill development as we are on making people feel better or try to make that, them feel better. To me, it, it, I hear mental health. What I sense is emotional health based on the skill sets necessary to deal with it, right? Because that's where the the real health is, is in the emotional being, not necessarily the mental being. Because if your emotion's great, your mind's going to be fine too. If you're not happy, your mind's going to be screwed up. But yeah, I, yeah, I don't know that I don't know that a lot of people pinpoint their emotions well enough. They'll be like, "Why am I feeling this way? I'm feeling depressed." Okay, let me go to the person i'll talk about my depression they'll give me a pill now i don't feel depressed but the depression was Doc, i heard about of... some ambien uh, how good is that will you prescribe me some right it, the the telemedicine in reverse mm -hmm. but they're not looking at the underlying issue well my, the reason i'm depressed is because my relationship with my mom or my spouse or my kids sucks or my my job isn't giving me these things so i don't know that people are like i mean in the business world we talk about five whys you know like ask five you know like why is this occurring then why is that then why why so you can really kind of get to root cause analysis i don't think a lot of people do that they're like i'm depressed and that means i'm a depressed person and that means i have a chemical imbalance therefore i need to get that in 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 order when the reality is it's your body trying to signal you've got a problem let's try to solve the problem and you're not paying attention like on your car if you didn't understand what the warning lights meant and then they just keep popping up and you're like i just want them to go away so that's where i see it's a lot about right. looking at the root cause analysis and, and trying to get through the, that the plug-in gaze to get the air code right <laughs> well yeah i mean you look at it that's where we we kind of act like we're these rational human beings and yet we don't understand that no one decided to go through puberty, you know, like, oh, it's my turn. I'm going to go through. And you're not going to go through hormonal changes. You know, women will go through hormonal and men when they have children and get married. There's all these other things. And not, not really menopause. I mean, that's yeah. you know, kind of like being in love where you're in a state of insanity. You make no major decisions. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, do we understand? Do we have a user's guide? There were a couple books, the female brain and the male brain that a woman wrote which is from this perspective of here's what's happening to your body here's the hormones here's what's going to do to your thinking we just don't have that type of education that i've seen in our schools where it's really trying to help us understand what our emotions are doing and why we might be in particular states right and very much the reason why i ended up writing a business plan for a holistic educational 
village, not just a school. Because if a village is going to raise the kids, you know, the, the plan that I had was the first ring would be built. You have your students. Part of the training is building trades. And so the second phase is built by the students for their families. And then so, and then that ripples out. So you've got some congruency in life skills, you know, because today, home ec, auto shop, wood shop, metal shop, they disappeared. Even even the arts in some schools are, are no longer there. Well, these are the things that give us the foundation for our ability to survive, right? You've got to have some aesthetic pleasures, and then you've got to be able to know how to fix it, right? <laughs> Whether it be food or cars, right? Well, and it's so much of schooling is like at an intellectual level, and it's not on a hands-on level. And so, I mean, I did mechanical engineering, and there was so much of it that was just theoretical until like the last, you know, year, year and a half, when all of a sudden it's like, oh, now we get to build stuff. And it was so much more funner and more interesting. Right, right. I had that problem in med school when I first started and you know, the, the labs, all the reading, all the, you know, understanding all the theories and stuff were, were great. But once you got into the chemistry, ooh, you know, you had to be really precise and aware and it, it was just kind of taxing because as an 18 year old, 19 year old, I just didn't want to do that. And I had more interest in studying consciousness because I had my awakening at, at 18 and so I was more interested, even though I was interested in healing, right, the medicine. That's the reason I got involved in medicine, because I wanted to help heal people and, and take care of people. Then I realized, oh, this system isn't made to heal people. It's made to string people along. And the core of the situation, the, the emotional, the physical, the intellectual, the spiritual health of those four, only one was being addressed. Well, and that's, that's where you see a lot of those problems. I, I think there's a ton of problems that are just a function of how isolated people have been, become. We're not spending enough time with people. There's There was a study where they had the rat, you know, with some implant that it could hit the lever and get this great sensation like sex, or it could get food. And it ended up just dying because that's all it did. You know, it never got the food. And then, but then they took that same rat, put it in a cage with other rats and all of a sudden it took care of itself well so i think with humans it's kind of the same like we need human interaction we need to interact like you said it's it's we not i and as soon as we get really isolated which a lot of us have a disposition to want to do we just become unhealthy and we become less happy so i think a lot of this is trying to understand ourselves and what we, we really need versus just kind of the the junk food of isolation do you think it has to do with setting boundaries and, and understanding what healthy boundaries are? Because a lot of times, especially in dysfunctional relationships, there's no boundaries. Yeah, I think, well, it's some of the, but the boundaries are, do you know yourself well enough? You're like, is it to know what your boundaries are? I think a lot of people really aren't very self-aware. And so, you know, do I want more people in my life? Is there a point when I'm like, I love having people around all the time, but you know, there's some cases where I need to, have some space mm -hmm. you know i saw that with my wife you know we get married and then you're like dude i'm with you all the time and then maybe you can go out with another woman and go watch this dance concert because i've already seen them all and so then she does that and it's like oh that's so refreshing for her i hang out with her this other woman's husband we play games together watch the kids 
you know, we're both fulfilled. And so it's like, how do you need space? And how do you communicate your need for space? Because if you don't communicate it well, it's like, I don't want to be around you, you know? Right. So, and that's rejection. And if that other person's like super needy or just feels like you're telling them you reject them, then that's not going to be good for the relationship. So it's an awareness of what you need and then the ability to communicate that appropriately. Awesome. And speaking of space, we've taken up quite a bit here. And I, maybe it's a good time to kind of segue into uh, what, you know, tasty tidbits you can offer that from your own exploration, maybe from your book, uh, about some simple things that, that folks can do, uh, especially the younger crowd, to kind of become more self-aware or to begin to learn how to ask better questions or what, you know, what kind of suggestions, what do you think is in your mind or, or heart being the simplest, most elegant piece of information or, or advice that you could give? Um, I think at the very core of my, of the way I see it, it's you need to know what your purpose is here. If you don't know what you're driving for in life, you will get washed away with the societal pull. Like my daughter, she was so good at anatomy and pathophysiology that they were like, you should be a doctor. And I'm like, but is that what you want in your life? Is, do you want to go down that path? And she was like, no, I don't. I want to get married before I'm 30. I want to do these other things. So if you're not clear on what you're trying to, you feel like your purpose is, if you're not connected to a higher being, higher power, whatever, or, you know, feel in harmony with yourself, it's really hard to make any decisions. It's really hard to know what you should spend your time on it's and, and the people that you should be with. So I think that the most important thing that people need to spend time with is what is your purpose? And once you find that, then you can, you can, you know, are you trying to be a Google? Are you trying to be a Walmart? Because those strategies are completely different, require different resources, you know, and, but if you're trying to, so if in your life, if you don't know what you're trying to be, spend some time with that. Look at people around you. What lives are these other people living? What, what, what looks, what's resonating with you, you know, connect with yourself, whether that's through meditation or prayer, connect with yourself so that you can say confidently, here's what I'm going for. Yeah. Because if you don't have that, I don't know where else you can, you know, if you don't know your, your outcome, how can anyone tell you how to get there? Whether that's right. Google or God or whoever. It's great advice. And there's also other tools. You know, one of the things I found that is, that's been wonderful. If you don't really know yourself, start doing some self-assessments, right? There's all kinds of self-assessment tools from Myers-Briggs, Colby, DISC, numerology, astrology, tarot. Uh, I mean, the, the, when you open your mind to allow those kinds of things to enter your sphere, if you will, full of thought or not, you offer the that opportunity of yourself to learn. And don't necessarily put barriers to learning, too. Because, again, nothing is good or bad. It's how you think it to be. And if you just accept it for as it is and what it can offer you, then it's a whole new story. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think with people, I think there's a there's an emergent level there too. Like you may think you want to go into the medical field, then like you go, you know, you go in. Oh, this isn't what I like. But the only way for you to find that out was to go through that experience and never so, be afraid to begin again. Yeah, well, and then the business world, you see this all the time, where 
a company tries to go start this type of company. One of the funniest ones in my, this guy wanted to start a video game example. He failed at making a video game and he went to his investors said, Hey, let's start over. Or like, here's your money back. They said, Nope, go figure it out. And then he made the company Flickr that he ended up selling to Yahoo for, I think 300 million. Yeah. Then that same guy was like, no, I want to make a video game. This was 10 years after that tried, failed again. Then he made Slack, which was sold to for 2 billion. You know, like you see this all the time in the business world where people are pivoting. I did it in my own life. I was a yeah. mechanical engineer. Then I went to business. Now I'm an author and I'm doing other stuff. This is the nature of life. If you get so focused on a singular objective, then it's going to be bad. You have to be getting this feedback and reacting to it. Yeah. Responding, I would think, because yeah. that better you wanna, word. Yeah. You want to flow with that. You want to pay attention. And, you know, if you're feeling like you were saying earlier, you want to, if you don't know what your purpose is, don't listen to other people as to what you, what they think it ought to be for you. That, that's probably one of the worst mistakes you can make, even though you want to be pleasing or you want to follow your footstep or the footsteps or, you know, all that kind of stuff, all a good intention, not where you're going to want to be because you're going to make yourself unhappy at some point because it wasn't what you really wanted to do. And you're going to realize that. And hopefully it's sooner than later. Then <laughs> you get a chance to, again, it's like a, a, an old Zen saying, you can always begin again. Mm -hmm. Yep. Cool. cool. Oh, Aaron, th this has just been amazing, wonderful, insightful, apocalyptic for some, I hope. And for those that have stuck with it, I really appreciate uh, you doing that. And Aaron, thank you so much for sticking with us and, and uh, having such a great conversation. It's really been enjoyable. Thanks a lot, Zen. It's been really enjoyable and fun for me as well. Very good. So we got a win-win. That, that's a start. Thanks again. And Namaste and in la catch. And thanks again for sticking with us for this episode of One World, the New World. I'm Zen Benefiel, your host, and I'll see you next time.